I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening from today, and I would like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Professor Fred Watson AM has been a fixture of Australian astronomy for decades, perhaps best known for his work promoting and explaining science and astronomy on television, radio and through publications. In addition to a long career at the Australian Astronomical Observatory and now as Astronomer-at-Large for the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science, he is the author of several popular books, a regular radio presenter and keen musician. Today, the Royal Institution of Australia's Editor-in-Chief Ian Cannellan talks with Professor Watson about his work as an Astronomer-at-Large and about his book, Space Warp, Colliding Comets and Other Cosmic Catastrophes, released on the 1st of November 2021. He takes us through topics including the tale of what got him interested in astronomy, the James Webb Space Telescope, the Dark Sky Alliance, and how we can improve our skies for professional and amateur astronomers alike. Fred, uh, as a scientist, why did you choose astronomy? Uh, There's a lot of other things to choose from. Um, I think astronomy chose me, Ian. I don't think it was anything to do with me. But as I've often said to people, when I when I was a kid growing up, um, space and astronomy were really in the ascendancies. It was the start of the space age. Uh, science was, you know, a, a paramount in terms of education and learning uh, because there'd recently been a world war and everybody thought there might be another one and you'd need scientists. So that was why... Um, uh, you know, in my high school, there were three science streams and one art stream, uh, and it's not been like that for a long time. Yeah. So it was, it was, it's just in our blood at the time. Uh, and gradually, all my peers that I went to school with, they grew up and did sensible things like becoming doctors and engineers, and uh, you know, and um, uh, dentists and things of that sort. Uh, I just stayed uh, with stars in my eyes and went to uni to study astronomy, and it kind of all happened that way. So you were as a as a kid, you were kind of a starry-eyed, you know, lie on your back on the grass and look at the sky kind of kid. Um, yes, except that where I grew up in the north of England, um, you only saw the stars about you know once every three months when the clouds cleared. Um, but I was, yeah, I was a, a starstruck teenager. I spent a lot of my youth trying to make telescopes out of bits and pieces that were lying around. Uh, I had a history teacher at school who was a keen amateur astronomer, and he was very generous. He had a really nice telescope which used to lend me so I explored the heavens with that and once um, got into trouble with the police from it because uh, uh, the, this uh, rather large constable dropped by and uh, explained that somebody had complained that there was a kid with a bazooka in, uh, <laughs> in the front gardens in Lidget Green where I grew up and so I had to give him a look at the moon or something like that to prove it wasn't anyway it was all fun. <laughs> uh, uh, we're we're here in part to talk about your new book space warp um i i think as i flicked through the pages did did i see uh how to build your own telescope section or <laughs> a little bit yeah there's there's a lot of that sort of thing these days you don't need to do it Ian. when you know when i was a kid if you wanted to buy a telescope for astronomy you had to be very rich indeed mm. uh, and and now um and so the only way you could practically do it was to make your own 
And a lot of people made their own mirrors. They crowned and polished the mirrors. But now, um, and, and in particular, in the last two decades, the Chinese optical industry has mastered the technique of mass producing really good quality optical instruments, and they are reasonably priced. So anybody can buy one. And, and I've kind of given a few pointers, certainly in one of the chapters of, of Space Warp, how to do that. So extremely, uh, extremely important work for the young astronomer. Yeah. Now you you came to Australia. You ended up as the uh, the head of the Anglo Australian Observatory at Coonabarabran in New South Wales. So you your your work has tended to be on the visual astronomy side of the spectrum, Fred. Yeah, what, what we call optical astronomy, using visible optical. light. Although you know the, the the days of people looking through telescopes to make this discoveries are generally speaking long gone there are still discoveries you can make but generally speaking you, you know we rely on electronic detectors on instruments that can see much better than our human eyes can uh it's mm. um it, it, so uh, I, I guess what you're distinguishing it from those radio astronomy uh which is the other ground-based astronomy and, and australia has a really uh important a position, a global position in both of those sciences. Uh, we've we've got um, excellent optical astronomers and excellent radio astronomers. What we don't have is the very best sites in the world to build optical or visible light telescopes. We've got a beautiful mountain top in the Warren Bungles that I spent what thirty years at nearly uh, working there, uh, twenty years as astronomer in charge, and uh, that's the best site we've got in Australia to put a big telescope. But there are now sites in the world which eclipse that in quality, principally in in the sharpness of the images that you can detect, and uh, the ones in the southern hemisphere are all in northern Chile. So we we in Australia have a strategic partnership with those observatories. Uh, of course, we've got much better. Um, radio telescope facilities. We have the most radio quiet place in the world in Western Australia, and that's where the square kilometre array is being built. Right. Uh, Fred, those th those really good quality optical telescopes that, that you mentioned in Latin America, the, the elevation and the clear skies, is that the thing that, okay? It's a little bit more than that, actually. What you need for a good optical observatory is uh, a mountain more than about three and a half thousand metres and you need it to be on the western seaboard of a continent, um, because that's where you get this airflow coming from the from the uh, west that uh, rises up uh, gently over the mountains and gives you this lack of atmospheric turbulence, which is the key thing yeah, for, right. uh, for for good viewing. And so, yes, that's when when you look at where all the great observatories in the world are situated, they're either on an offshore island or they're on the west coast of a continent on a high mountain. Uh, we, we said that we're here to talk about the book, but you could tell that I could just keep chasing down this rabbit hole. I have to ask, they're about to launch the, well, it's currently called the James Webb Space Telescope. I suspect it might not be uh, by the time it gets up there. T tell me about that. Are, are you excited by this? Yeah, of course. Uh, 18th of December, as far as we know, is the launch date. Um, that telescope is a 6.5 metre infrared telescope which is the next step up from the visible uh, wave band um, and it's chosen to be infrared for very good reasons there's actually a huge amount that we can learn from the universe in the infrared wave band uh, it will be in space it won't be in orbit around the earth it will be at uh, a, a site uh, one and a half million kilometers uh, on the opposite side of the earth from the sun so it will orbit the sun 
Uh, and uh, it, it, it's an, an astonishing machine because it's got this 18 segment mirror which will deploy like a kind of piece of origami uh, when it all unfurls and turns into a perfect optical optical surface six and a half meters in diameter uh, and what we will learn from that i think is going to be quite staggering how long will it take to get on station fred after launch it's a matter of uh, as if my memory serves me correctly it's it takes a, a few weeks it's a relatively okay. short amount of time but uh you know it's not something you can hurry you're limited by orbital mechanics and the other thing is if anything goes wrong with the deployment of this uh, this um, origami mirror you're in trouble because there aren't any spacecraft that we have at our disposal to go and fix it. Unlike the Hubble telescope, which of course yeah. didn't need fixed back in 1990. Yeah, right. Well, um, we, I, I, I was just reading in one of the newspapers this morning, I hadn't realised that it was so close to launch. And I thought, yeah, you know, this is going to be really exciting, isn't it? Look, meanwhile, back on Earth, yeah. Professor Fred Watson has just launched a new book. This is, uh, what are you up to, Fred? Five, well, six? Yeah. It actually it's the sixth, yeah. Okay. Um, it's uh it looks like this. <laughs> oh, see, I've only got a bit of paper. So. Got a bit of paper yeah. <laughs> That's it, great. It's my first um book for young people, for youngsters uh age eight, ten thereabouts plus, up to their parents and grandparents, because I've tried to write it for everybody so that everybody will enjoy it. There's a few you know, little quirky bits that I hope people will react to. But no, I'm I'm really delighted with the way it's turned out. It's um, it's something that's made me very happy. Uh, and um, well, apart from all the hard work, <laughs> and I hope everybody else uh, enjoys it to the same extent. One of the things that I couldn't help noticing, being familiar with some of your earlier books, you you say that it's directed at young people, but actually. You've done a fantastic job through all of your outreach. Of um, it, it, you're a really accessible speaker and writer. Um, you, you you don't go for dense science. It's understandable, and and this really feels much the same. Thank you, Ian. That's very kind of you to say that, and that, that's how I feel about it. Um, there is something brand new in this book, though, uh, in the sense that um, when I was a youngster about the age that this is written for and a bit older. I used to do a huge amount of drawing and sketching uh, and I always had a pencil in my hand uh, or a pen and was drawing things. And then I, I stopped uh, for 50 years <laughs> until somebody in the family, um, Marnie's mum actually, who's an artist, looked at my old sketchbooks and said, you should still be doing this. Uh, and she kept buying me sketchbooks and pens for birthday presents. And I was thinking, yeah, I haven't got time to do any of that. Anyway, uh, I, in fact, I, I started drawing again. And so uh, this book has, is full of cartoons and sketches and things of that sort, uh, which have given me a lot of pleasure because it, it, she's quite right. You don't really lose it. You know, you, you keep going on all that sort of thing. And there has been a spin-off, uh, if I may be so bold as to mention it, in that um, 12 of those cartoons are now in the Space Warp 2022 oh. calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. So where, where can we find our calendars, Fred? Um, uh, you, you can go to the uh, the place to order them is uh, fredwatson.com 
www.ngo.au, the website, and you'll okay. find a link there. I haven't checked it, actually, so I hope that's true. <laughs> but by the time this goes to air, there should be a link uh, to how you can find the spacewalk. Fantastic. Fred, I have to admit, as I, I don't have a paper copy of the book, I've only got a, a PDFs, an electronic one. As I scrolled past these illustrations, I thought, oh, they're great, but I didn't realise it was you. <laughs> well, no. Anyway, well, that's all right. It's not the, 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 it's not the important thing that they're, they're me. The important thing is that they're there. Uh, and they, they, they all tell a story as well. Some of, them, some of them are a bit quirky, which is why there's a bit of an explanatory note next to them all right. to tell you what's going on. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you to get the cat into, into shot. <laughs> <laughs> He's somewhere around. He's usually fast asleep. He's got this curious... A habit of lying flat on his back with his legs in the air. It's very strange. It's a very unusual cat. Anyway, he's, well, in, when, he's in some of the pictures. Yeah, I, I, I noticed. When you're when you're working on a new book and you think, well, what is it that you? What is it about communicating science that it continues to inspire you after all this time? Um, that's a really good question. Part of it is that science is just bursting with new discoveries, Ian. It's, uh, it's in a golden age, really. Uh, certainly astronomy and space science are. Mm -hmm. And in a way, um, what propels me is the fact that I'm always reading about new discoveries and the exciting stuff that people are doing and achieving. Mm. And uh, having done that sort of thing myself, because I used to be a research astronomer 50 years ago, uh, maybe not quite that long, but certainly played a part in some of the discoveries that were made. Mm. Um, I know what it's all about. I know what it feels like. And so uh, as these news, new stories come along, I'm always really anxious to share them. Uh, and, and I'm fortunate in having the opportunity to do that through radio and the, and the Space Knots podcasts and things of that sort, and things like this as well. Um, you know, it's it, it all contributes. I write for Australian Geographic, you probably know. Uh, these things all allow me to think, you know, what, what is the thing that's really uh, exciting me at the moment in science? And then to try and explain what's going on to a wider audience. Yeah, right. Fred, among the other things that excite you, you're, you're the patron of the Australasian Dark Skies Alliance. Can you can you tell me a bit about the alliance? Um, what does it do? What's its aim? Yeah, it's it's really, um, you know, I guess you'd call it an advocacy group. Um, they're certainly not um, uh, activists going around with banners and things. But it, the idea is to raise awareness uh, among the general population about how much our lives are impacted by light pollution. Uh, and it is a real pollution. You know, cities are very bright because they've evolved over the last couple of hundred years with really not much thought being given to keeping the light where it's meant to be rather than spreading it all around. And so we've got these plumes of light above cities. But we're now realising, I, I should explain that um, I guess the awareness of light pollution and the idea of doing something about it and designing good sky-friendly lights, that really started off with the world of astronomy, as you can imagine, because light pollution stops people from seeing the stars. Mm. Um, but um, in the last 10 years, we've realised that the natural world generally 
um, is suffering because of light pollution. So uh, many of the migrating species and the, you know, not the migrating ones, the local species in and around cities are in a bad way because they are, their circadian rhythms are being disturbed by the fact that there are, there are lights on all the time. And so now um, one of the great things that's happened within the last couple of years is the, uh, the, the, the guidelines for uh, wildlife uh, against light pollution, good lighting in terms of uh, how, it, um, you know, how it, uh, it benefits rather than disturbs wildlife. And we're also seeing medical evidence for the, the, the idea that bad lighting is, is actually bad for humans. Yeah, so right. something that started with astronomers, and it, certainly for me it started because I, part of my job as the astronomer in charge of the National Observatory at Coonabarabran uh, was to keep the site dark. Um, so I worked with legislators and lighting engineers to, to help to do that. That's how it started with me, but it's now blossomed into a much bigger thing. And the uh, Australasian Dark Sky Alliance is all about educating people, getting the word out, showing people that you can actually light your backyard or your sports ground or whatever it is with lighting that doesn't spoil the night sky for everybody else. Yeah, right. As part of the work, Fred, you, you've identified places in Australia that are that are very dark and, and good for amateur observers. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so Australia is really fortunate in that, you know, we've got this band of cities around the outside, which are fairly well lit. Uh, they're certainly not as badly lit as many European and North American cities. Uh, but we also have an interior that is, is very dark. Uh, and so to highlight that, we have worked uh, over a, a number of different agencies to to create dark sky parks. The first one actually was the Warren Bungle Dark Sky Park. Right. This is an accreditation by an organisation called the International Dark Sky Association, the IDA. Uh, and to, to get your accreditation, you've got to work pretty hard to demonstrate that what you've got is well worth that. So the Warren Bungle National Park in northwestern New South Wales is right next to the Siding Spring Observatory. Uh, and in fact, that was the first um, IDA accredited dark sky park in Australia. There are now two more, one uh, not very far from you uh, in Adelaide, um, uh, Murray, uh, Murray Basin, uh, there is one. Uh, and there's also one up in Queensland at uh, Winton, the Age of Dinosaurs dark sky park. And we hope that the, uh, the country's first urban dark sky park will be not far from where I am here in northern Sydney, ah. uh, the place called uh, Pitwater, Palm okay. Beach in fact is the suburb. Uh, the IDA recognises there are some places which are not perfectly dark, they're too near a city, but they have the um, the understanding of the need for uh, for dark skies and the absence of light pollution as part of their ethos and we hope that um, Palm Beach will be the first of those. Oh wow, um, the, and, and Part of that, the proximity to an urban area is that it's an opportunity for people to go to a place where observations are possible. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. you know, star parties and things like that, not, not rowdy ones, of course. It's a terribly genteel area. We keep things, keep things very civilised. But, yeah, that sort of thing, the, the kind of thing that might um, educate people about the, the night sky and it being, a, a, being near a city makes it even more accessible. Yeah, right. Fred, it's always fascinating talking to you. I could go for quite a while. I, th there's one last thing I'd like to know. It's a, um, a few years since I've seen you, and uh, in that time you have become astronomer at large. Now, it's, that's, it's just one of those 
I know what an editor at large does. Tell me about being an astronomer at large. What's your role? It is a great title, isn't it? And yep. it, 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 it's, there's a story attached to it, which I haven't time to tell you. Um, um, but let me briefly say that somebody did suggest that uh, when my job changed, which it did three years ago, um, uh, that uh, to give me a new title, uh, if I became astronomer, at large, they only had to change four letters on the office door from astronomer in charge, uh, <laughs> and so we all fell about. Like, it's a different, it's a different uh, office, uh, but yes, it does sound like somebody is wanted by the police as an astronomer at large. It's it's an uh, an outreach and advocacy role, Ian. Mm. So it's about doing what we're doing now, right? Um, but also about um, some. There's, there's a grown-up aspect to it as well. That the kind of things that are involved with the, the international treaties for the square kilometre array, uh, the deal that we have with the European Southern Observatory, that's at a high level of government. And so um, I'm involved with that kind of thing as well. Uh, and always happy to provide advice within the department that employs me, which is the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources, uh, from an astronomer's viewpoint, which, um, you know, it's it's perhaps the way uh, uh, the, the way the job was sculpted so that I could come and tell people, uh, you know, some of the background to what we're actually trying to achieve. Right. Fred, is it a job for life? You know, are you like a Supreme Court judge? You just stay there as long as you want or? <laughs> well, until, you know, until they think <laughs> Fred's lost it or something like that. <laughs> I, mean, I'm, I have to say, Ian, I'm, I'm, I'm actually decades past my use by date, but um, I look, I, this is the job you know, it's the dream job for me because it lets me talk about astronomy. It lets me um, advise people about astronomy, educate people about astronomy. Uh, and that's what's driven me my whole life. So it's a job that until somebody asks me to go or I fall over, uh, I will stick with as long as I can. <laughs> well, Professor Fred Watson for a bloke. What did you say? A couple of decades past his use by date. You're looking pretty <laughs> chipper and it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks. Many thanks here. Good to talk and hope we catch up again soon. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, current affairs and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code that you'll find in the description. You can also watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link that you'll also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton. Today's interview was hosted by Ian Canellan, and our executive producer is Catherine Roberts. Thank you.